Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Today is October 27th, which means just a few days from now will be All Hallowed's Eve, followed by All Saints Day, but for us here in the Reformed tradition, that is also the anniversary of October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the door at the church in Wittenberg. And so traditionally we refer to this, this coming October 31st, as Reformation Day. This is the 502nd anniversary of Reformation Day. So I think if you are going to participate in the All Hallowed's Eve in any way, that you ought to dress your children up as a little monk and send them out Rather than knocking on doors, they ought to go around nailing theses to doors. And if they also get some candy out of the deal, well, bonus. But for those of you who are of the Reformed tradition, happy Reformation Day coming up right around the corner. We are in Romans chapter 13. You can turn there. We ended last week. At verse 8, we will be picking up today right at verse 8. After having said that we ought to pay taxes to whoever we owe taxes, that we ought to give everyone their due, we ought to render custom to whom custom is due, fear, reverence, honor to whoever honor or reverence is due, Paul then concludes that we ought not owe anybody anything. What he's saying is, if you owe someone, pay it. Be willing to pay it. But then he follows that up with, yeah, but you do owe everybody one more thing. And the one thing that you do owe each other is that you love one another. And then he makes a phenomenally theological statement. Paul couldn't help himself. After having said, you owe it to love one another, he then says, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. It's an astoundingly theological statement that has a whole history, a whole background to it that you can't really understand without understanding the religious culture in which Paul said this. So we're going to spend the first part of this morning going back and looking at what it means that Paul would say that loving one another is fulfilling the law. So this morning we sang, love lifted me. We sang, isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? And then we sang, Free from the law, oh happy condition. All three of those songs are kind of summed up in what Paul said here. Love being the essential element and that love for your neighbor fulfills the law. What is he saying? It's a whole lot deeper than just saying now we are no longer under the requirements of the law of Moses. He's actually saying that by loving one another, we have satisfied, we have fulfilled the requirements of the law. So let's back up to the very beginning and get some sense of what Paul is saying. I have told you in years past that the Hebrew reference to the scriptures, the nickname that was given to what we would call the Old Testament. That nickname was the Tanakh. It comes from three consonants in the Hebrew language. There are no vowels in the Hebrew language. 
TNK and then written in the English language, it's like a KH in order to accomplish that aspirate sound that's part of that consonant. That TNK is actually an acronym. And what it stands for is Torah, Neveim, and Ketavim. Now we're going to break each of those down for a moment. Torah is a word that you're probably familiar with. You ought to know that that refers to the law. But the Hebrew language is not a particularly exacting language. There are words that have a wide berth of meaning, and you really have to look at it in the context to understand what the particular meaning is or the way that that word is being used. Torah is one of those words. Torah can mean the five books that Moses wrote that we call the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those books are assigned to Moses. And so sometimes the word Torah means those five books, but sometimes the word Torah means the law of Moses, which you will find written in the first five books of the Bible. However, you won't find it in, like, the book of Genesis. So if you're referring to the first five books of the Bible, you're not referring specifically to the law of Moses because you won't find that in the book of Genesis. You will find it in the book of Leviticus, which is the law of the Levites, which is where it gets its name. As the tribes of Israel were on the verge of going into the promised land after their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the law was repeated to them a second time. And so that's where the Greek word nomos repeated secondly, deutero, the deuteronomos, that's where we get the word deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. And so... When we say the word Torah, remember that we're sometimes referring to the specific law that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, which has 10 specific commandments and then 613 ordinances, but then sometimes Torah can mean the first five books of the Bible. So far, are we okay? Yep. Have I confused anybody yet? Okay. The N in the Tanakh is the Neveim, which means... The prophets, it's a reference to the prophetic books. And in fact, at home, I have a chart of all the different Old Testament books that fall into each of these categories. And when I put this message up on the uh, internet, I will include that chart so that everyone will know exactly what books fall into each of these categories. Now, when you hear that word im, neveim, that im is a plural it's kind of like the way in the English language you would add an S in order to pluralize something. I can give you examples like uh, the Kodesh Kodeshim. We just call that the Holy of Holies. It is a way of emphasizing that that is the holiest place to say that it is the Holy of Holies. The same way we would say King of Kings or Lord of Lords. It is the holy of holies, Kodesh Kodeshim, that is the plural of it. And so when we are looking at the Neveim, we're looking at the prophets as a group. And then the Kedavim, the Kedavim are the writing books, the history books, the wisdom books, Proverbs or Psalms or the book of Job. That is all part of what makes up the Kedavim. That language of the Tanakh then became a nickname for the whole of the Old Testament, and it divided the Old Testament into three parts. That idea, that language was very common in the first century, so much so that another of the nicknames that was given to the Old Testament, see, they couldn't call it the Old Testament. We call it the Old Testament because we have the New Testament, and therefore we can refer to the New and the Old. But they did not walk around talking about their scriptures as the Old Testament. 
The New Testament didn't exist yet. In fact, the New Testament was just being written. As Paul was writing these letters, he didn't know that he was necessarily writing what we would refer to as scriptures these days. They hadn't been inscripturated. They hadn't been gathered yet into a compendium of books that we refer to as the New Testament. The Gospels were still in the process of being written and just at the very early parts of being distributed when Paul wrote the book of Romans. And so they couldn't say, well, in the Old Testament, one of the words that they would use was in the scriptures. Like Paul saying that all scripture is written by inspiration and is profitable for teaching, for reproof. And so... Scripture is a nickname that is given to what we call the Old Testament. Jesus said things like, you search the scriptures, you think in them you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. Okay, now hold on to that idea. Jesus said that the scriptures, the whole of the scriptures, the whole of what we call the Old Testament, testifies of him. Stay with me, I'm going somewhere. Another nickname for the scriptures was the law and the prophets. If you use that phrase, the law and the prophets, if you talk to a first century Jew and you wanted to refer to the scriptures, you could call it the law and the prophets because, again, what we call the Old Testament was divided up into three big categories, the law, the prophets, the writing. Sometimes in the New Testament, it's also referred to as the law, the prophets, and the writing. But the law and the prophets was enough to make anybody understand that you were referring to what was written before Jesus got to the planet, what we would refer to as the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples of that. In Matthew 7, starting at verse 9, Jesus speaking, he says, What man is there among you who... When his son asks for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, you won't give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him in everything? Therefore, treat people the same way that you want them to treat you, because this is the law and the prophets. Okay, so Jesus is building... A basic theological equation here, a one-for-one parallel that Paul's going to pick up on in what we would call the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way that you want them to treat you. He then says that idea of treating other people good the way you want to be treated, that, he says, is the law and the prophets. So he just said, The whole of the Old Testament can be wrapped up in do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In other words, the way that you treat people, you treat them the way you want to be treated. If you're doing that, that kind of sums up what the whole of the law and the prophets is all about. In Luke 16, 16, Jesus speaking says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. Verse 17, then he says, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of one letter of the law to fail. Okay, now he's told us something again, really, really vitally important. When referring to the law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament He says that's been proclaimed until John the Baptist. Now we're preaching the gospel of the kingdom. But then he says it's never going to fail. It's never going to pass away. Heaven and earth could pass away before one stroke of the letter of the law would fail. One stroke of the letter of Torah would fail. Paul, of course, has already told us in the book of Romans that the law is good. The law is right. The law is holy. Therefore, it's not necessary that the law be done away with because the law is good, right, and holy. So why would you get rid of something that's good and right and holy? So one letter of the law will not pass away, will not fail. Hold on to that idea. Luke 24, starting at verse 36 
While they were telling these things, he himself, Jesus, stood in their midst. This is after his death, burial, and resurrection. And he said to them, peace be with you. But they were startled and afraid, and they thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do your doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, He showed them his hands and feet, and while they still could not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he said to them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it, proving that he was flesh and blood. And then he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So he went for the full Tanakh there. He went, Torah, Nevaim, Kedavim, everything written about me in the law, in the prophets, in the Psalms, all of that has to be, notice the word. This is a really, really important word. Paul's going to use this word. This is why I'm going through this whole exercise. He doesn't say everything in the law and the prophets and the writing, everything in the Old Testament, everything in the law of Moses has to be abolished. He didn't say it all has to be done away with. Instead, what he said is everything written about me must be fulfilled. Now, our English word fulfilled just means filled full. How complicated was that? (laughs) If you're pouring water in a glass right up to the brim, you're doing the fulfilling. You're filling it full. Pleru is the Greek word, and that's what it means. It means to be fully satisfied, fully accomplished. And we know that everything that was written about Jesus prophetically and in the Psalms, in the writings, in the Proverbs, everything that was written about him in the law, all the types and shadows, all of it came to their satisfaction, came to their fulfillment in him. So we have to keep that concept in mind that it is the fulfilling of the law that is the satisfaction of the law, that is the reason we are free from the law, oh, happy condition. Not because the law was eradicated, not because it was abolished, because remember, not one stroke of one letter of the law is going to fail. The law is going to stand whole and complete and holy and righteous and good. It stands, but in Jesus, it's satisfied. It's fulfilled. Stay with me. I'm still going somewhere. In Acts 30, starting at verse 14, we read, But going on from Perga, they arrived in Pisidian and Antioch, and the Sabbath day they went to the synagogue, and they sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue official said to them, Brethren, do you have any words of exhortation for the people? Then say it. So in the book of Acts, we see again this phrase, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets refer to what we call the Old Testament. In Acts 24, neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself, did they ever find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing any riots. This is Paul giving a defense of himself nor can they prove to you any of the charges of which they now accuse you. But this I admit to you, that according to the way that they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. You getting this sense? Mm -hmm. The law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. Hang on to that. The law and the prophets refers to the whole of the Old Testament, which Jesus says all has to be fulfilled, all has to be satisfied, and all has to be satisfied in him. Acts 28, starting at verse 23. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. So here Paul 
as he was under house arrest, still had people coming to him, and he was showing them from the scripture, from the Old Testament, from the law and the prophets, that Jesus was who he said he was. Finally, in Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by, being testified to, being written about by the law and the prophets. So the whole of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, shows the righteousness of God apart from the law that's being revealed in Jesus Christ that was written about in the Old Testament. Do you see how the term the law and the prophets is being used? I'm saying all of this to get you in the mindset for what I'm about to read for you from Jesus. Do you understand my point so far? Yes. Okay. Fulfill, not abolish, not eradicate, but to fulfill. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. The common thinking, unfortunately, among the Jewish leaders was that Jesus preaching himself as the satisfaction for God, preaching himself as the redeemer of Israel, preaching himself as the way and the truth and the life, they then accused him of saying, well, then you're saying that all our scripture, our law and prophets, everything that we have been following for the last 1,400 years in the law and everything that we know historically reaching all the way back to the book of Genesis, you're saying none of that matters? You're saying now it's all about you? Now you're the important one? And Jesus' answer is, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Don't think that I came to eradicate, to wipe out the whole of the Old Testament. No, just the opposite. I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill. Same word, exact same word, pleru in the Greek. He's saying, I didn't come to do away with everything that's written in the Old Testament. I am the satisfaction. I am the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. Now, by the way, that has far-reaching implications, especially if he says, everything written in the law and the prophets. Okay, so if the word Torah means the first five books of the Bible then we're talking about everything written in Genesis. We're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, both the spiritual aspect of it and the physical aspect of it, and the land promises and the seed of Abraham and them coming back to their land and being established as a kingdom. Everything in the law and the prophets, that means the Davidic covenant, that's in the writings, that's, that's also in the prophecies then that all has to be satisfied. That all has to be fulfilled. Everything in the law and the prophets. The prophets speak with one voice that God is one day going to regather Israel, all 12 tribes, and bring them back to their land and establish them as a kingdom. Everything in the law and the prophets, Jesus says, that's going to happen. I'm the fulfillment of it. Isn't that interesting? In other words, he said, don't think that any part of what's already been said, what's already been written, is in any way abolished, is in any way done away with. It's not. It's not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come to establish the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Everything written in the law and the prophets through me is good. In fact, Paul picks up that very idea. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but it was yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Do you understand what Paul is saying? Paul is saying through Jesus, every promise of God is both yes, affirmative, actually good, 
Still going to happen. And amen. What does amen mean? It will be so. Verily, verily, it shall be so. So Paul says in Christ, through Christ, all the promises in the Old Testament, completely, from front to back, every bit of it, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketavim, all of it, the law, the prophets, the writings, all of it is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the satisfaction and fulfillment of everything that was written about him before he got here, and he came here to fulfill it, not to get rid of it. He didn't get rid of the law. The law is right and holy and good, like I've already said. But then what is our standing before the law since Christ died under the curse of the law? Well, then what about us if, in fact, the law still stands? Because as I've told you time and time again, all the law can ever do is condemn you. Paul has already said that the reason the law exists is to show all men how guilty they are. Sin became all the more sinful when God gave the law. And there was something that the law could not do. My daughter just said the law could not save. What the law could not do was give you the ability to do it. It couldn't change you from the inside. It couldn't change your heart. Here, I'll give you an example. Does anybody know what the speed limit is out here on Hazelwood? Is it 35? Yeah, 30. 30? 30. Oh, man, am I in trouble. Um, aren't we all? That's the point. Okay, so there's signs posted. The only reason you know what the speed limit is on Hazelwood is because you know 30 is how fast you're supposed to go. And not a one of you drove here this morning and stayed under 30. Why? Because the law can tell you what the rule is. It just can't make you do it. There is a philosophy in modern jurisprudence that says uh, you cannot legislate morality. The idea behind that is you can make external rules for people. There are external rules. God himself says do not kill, but we as the American society all agree that you should not kill. If you kill people, we'll send police to come get you and we'll put handcuffs on you and lock you in a box somewhere because killing is not allowed. So you've got God saying don't kill. You've got every civilized society saying don't kill. Do people kill? Yes. And yet people kill because external rules can't change your heart. External rules can't give you the desire to do the rules. All they can do is stand external to you and say, don't. And the only time that they kick in is when you do. And the cop can pull you over on Hazelwood and say, you were doing 40 in a 30 and give you a ticket. All the law can do is make you guilty. You got it? You got it. Okay, so now Paul has told us, we've already read it, Paul has now told us something really astounding theologically. He's told us that we that are in Christ can actually stand in front of an absolutely impossible law, an impossible command, and actually respond to it. The command I'm thinking of is that God said, be holy, I'm holy. Okay, that's a command from God. Short of God doing something for you, you can't do that. Left to yourself, left to the fact that we are all sinful, depraved people, we can't do it. And yet the command stands. Yet the command is good and right and holy. Be holy. The only way that you can stand before that command and respond positively to it is if God deposits in you his Holy Spirit. 
And once the Holy Spirit of God is inside you, it changes your heart, takes out your heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh. And for the first time, you're able to actually respond positively to those rules that are otherwise impossible. That's what Paul is getting at when he says, that was all introduction. That's not what Paul just said. But that was all introduction to understand, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another because he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. He's not saying that you've eradicated it. He's not saying that you've abolished it. He's saying, for the first time, you're actually doing it. The requirements of the law, the requirements that Moses brought down from Sinai that nobody could do, as long as they just stood as external rules and laws, you just couldn't do it because they didn't change your heart. They didn't get to you internally and change you. Laws, external rules, things written in stone can't change you. So God had to change you to bring you into subjection to the rules that he expects you to live by. And when you live in love for one another, you are, according to Paul, fulfilling what the law expected of you. Isn't that remarkable? Yes. There are things that the Bible says that frighten me. There are expectations that the Bible has of me that scare me to death. There are things that the Bible says that ought to make every one of us shudder because we're standing before a righteous and a holy God who is also a righteous and a holy judge. And yet we read that love covers a multitude of sins. And then we read Paul saying like here that love, love for each other, love for one another, sacrificial love for one another, agape love for one another. The best definition that I've ever found for this is doing for the one who is loved what is best for the one that is loved. Regardless of whether you're getting anything back for it, whether you're satisfied by doing it, you're just doing what is good for your neighbor because that is what is good for your neighbor. You're sacrificially doing what is good for the person who's being loved. And once you're living like that, once you're doing that, you're actually living in the fulfillment, in the satisfaction of the law that used to say things to you like, don't kill. And yet we kept killing. Here, let me put it this way. Micah, be careful with your answer here. Do you love your wife? Okay. Right answer, by the way. Attaboy. Attaboy. We're all for you. I don't have to tell Micah, don't commit adultery. I don't have to tell him that. You know why? He loves his wife. And because he loves his wife... He's not going to commit adultery because he loves his wife. So what just happened? The condition of his heart, the love that comes from his understanding and recognition and desire for his wife is enough to keep him from doing what the law written in stone couldn't keep him from doing. The law written in stone says, don't kill. But people keep killing. Okay, Paul is about to say, but if you love your neighbor, you're not going to kill them because you love them. Your attitude toward them has changed. God has changed you from the inside. God has changed the condition of your heart. The desires of your heart have been changed so that instead of external rules telling you, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, The fact that you love one another keeps you from doing it. So in that way, you have already satisfied, fulfilled the law that said, don't do it. You get it? Yes. See, Micah just said he's not going to commit adultery. And you can hold him to that now. Micah just said he's he's not committing adultery on his wife. Was it because rules written in stone said don't commit adultery? 
No, it wasn't because of that. It was because of his love for his wife that he's not going to commit adultery. Look, the end result is the very thing the law tried to get him to do. That the law didn't have the power to get him to do. That love did get him to do. Do you understand the difference? Yep. Yes, sir. And in fact, since I have compared these rules to the Ten Commandments, Paul's now going to do that very same thing. And Paul's not alone. This is what Jesus did. Paul is about to say, commands. He's going to name commandments. For this, you shall not commit adultery. Which commandment is that, by the way? Uh, seventh. seventh commandment. You shall not murder. Six. You shall not steal. Eight. You shall not covet. The tenth of the ten commandments. And, says Paul, and if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, then you don't have to be told, don't kill them. You're not going to. You love them. You don't have to be told, don't steal from them. You're not going to. You want what's best for them. You don't have to be told, don't covet what they have. Don't be jealous of what God has given them. Because you love them. You want what's best for them. You want what's good for them. So if you love your neighbor as yourself, then that is the summing up, says Paul, of all the commandments. Now, where did Paul get the authority to say something like that? Where does Paul get off saying, look, if you just love one another, that's the fulfilling of all the commandments? Well, he got it straight from Jesus. Turn over to Matthew 22 for just a moment. Matthew 22, we're going to start in verse 36. Actually, we'll start in verse 35. A lawyer. A lawyer is somebody who, during the New Testament era, somebody who studied the law. The law of Moses, the Torah. And this lawyer asked Jesus a question, and then Matthew tells us, testing him. The whole reason for the question was to test Jesus, to try to trap Jesus, to try to capture Jesus. He said, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law, in the Torah? I think the lawyer was looking for one of the ten. I think he was expecting, well, the the most important one is don't kill or something like that. So that he could say, well, good, I do that. So since I do that, I guess I'm off scot-free here. What is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, and this is fascinating, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6.5. That's not in the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments do say, you'll have no other God before me. You won't make any graven images. You're not going to take my name in vain. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, you're not going to do those things. You're not going to take his name in vain. You're not going to make idols that you can go and worship instead of him. You're not going to have any other gods before him if you're loving him with all your heart and mind and strength. So love then, love for God, becomes the fulfillment of the first three of the Ten Commandments. You getting this? Yes. And then Jesus said, and the second one is like it. He then said the very thing that Paul quoted. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19.18. Again, not one of the top ten. Not one of the Ten Commandments. But you will love your neighbor as yourself. When he said that, he was saying that satisfies the rest of the commandments. On these two, says verse 40, on these two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself, on these two commandments depend the whole of the law and the prophets. Now you know the phrase, the law and the prophets. The whole of the Old Testament 
everything commanded to you is going to be satisfied and fulfilled in you by loving God and loving your neighbor. And then, if that's the way you're living, if you have the Spirit of God inside you, inspiring you to love one another because you're all part of the body and bride of Christ, if you're loving one another, then you don't need the external rules written in stone telling you not to do the things that you're just naturally not doing. There are no commandments saying, breathe regularly. Because you're going to. You're going to do that anyway. You don't need to be commanded to do that. Same idea. If you're loving each other, you don't need to be told, don't kill each other. If you're loving each other, you don't need to be told, don't steal from each other. Okay, so now turn to the book of Galatians. Turn to Galatians 5. Right after 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you'll find the book Galatians in the New Testament. Look for Galatians 5. This is also Paul writing. We're going to start in verse 13. It's hard for me to pick a place to start, but verse 13 is going to correspond very much with what we're about to read out of Paul in the next chapter. He's going to talk about the freedom that we have in Christ. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for your flesh, but through love, serve one another. Through sacrifice, love each other. If this sounds familiar, it's the same thing Paul writes to the Philippians when he says, consider others as better than yourselves. Don't look on your own things. Look on the things of others. Same idea. This is standard Pauline theology. It's the heart and core of what Paul thinks the church ought to be like. You are called to freedom, brethren. Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. The whole of the law is fulfilled. It is satisfied, not eradicated, not abolished, not done away with. The same way that Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. Here's Paul saying that we fulfill the requirements of the law on us if we just love one another. And by loving one another, we are going to satisfy, we are going to fulfill the requirements that the law put on us. And the law written in stone by itself didn't have the ability to make us or allow us to even live up to those laws. But now that we're in Christ and Christ is in us, now that we have the spirit of truth, the spirit of God inside us, now that our stony heart is taken out and we're given this heart of flesh, now that we love God, the proclivity of our life is to love him in heart, soul, mind, strength. Well, then loving our neighbor as ourself becomes the satisfaction of the entirety of the law. Look, if you're loving each other, if you're treating each other in a genuinely sacrificial way, then you satisfy the law. The law has nothing against you. And in fact, the law says, do it and I'll bless you. The blessings of the law are attendant in you loving one another. You have all the inspiration in the world for why you ought to love one another. Why you ought to look after one another. Why you ought to take care of each other. Why you ought to sacrifice for each other. Because fulfillment of the law is in you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But verse 15 says in Galatians 5. But if you bite and devour one another, take care, lest you are consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desires of your flesh. If you walk by the Spirit of God, if you walk by what the Word of God says for your life, and you walk by the Holy Spirit of God that becomes a governor on your performance, if you walk by that Spirit, then you're just not going to carry out the desires of your flesh. What are the desires of your flesh? Killing people, hurting people, wanting other stuff, desiring the things you don't have, being jealous of other people. 
Those are the desires of the flesh, and you're not going to carry them out. If you're walking by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit would cause you to love your neighbor as yourself. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit sets its desire against the flesh. For these two are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So walking by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Loving one another, loving your neighbor as yourself, you're not under the law. You're fulfilling the law. You are satisfying the law by walking after the Spirit of God, walking after the Spirit of Christ, loving one another. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You have satisfied, you have fulfilled the whole of the law. If you are led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but... The fruit of the Spirit, if you're walking after the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Look where that ended up, right at the top of the list. Because love is the satisfaction, is the fulfillment of the law. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Since you have satisfied and fulfilled the law... There is no law for those who are walking by the fruit of the Spirit in love, in joy and peace, patience and kindness. Now those who belong to Jesus Christ have been crucified and have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, which means if we have eternal life by the Spirit, then let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us conduct ourselves according to the very Spirit that has saved us. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, or envying one another. Okay, that's all introduction. We're back to the book of Romans finally, and I think we can wrap up the morning. Are you getting some sense of Paul's theology on the fulfillment of the law through love, love toward God, love toward neighbor? If you do that, you have satisfied, you have fulfilled the law, the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament, the requirements that are placed upon you by God in his holiness can be satisfied by the spirit of God working through you, the way you are walking out the spirit in your life and the way you are sacrificially loving one another. And that's, just such incredibly good news because the law still stands. The law is still there. The law is still holding people guilty. There are still people who are going to be judged by the law and their failure to live up to the law. But you, you've escaped that. You're not going to be held to that. Instead, you're going to be satisfying it. You're going to be fulfilling it. And you're not doing it in yourself. You're doing it through Christ, by the Holy Spirit of God. You're doing it because you're walking by the Spirit and it is exuding in and through you in a way that shows itself through sacrificial love. And in that way you have fulfilled the requirements written in stone that didn't have the power to change your heart and make you do them. But the love of God and the love of Christ in you has caused you to satisfy the very thing the law couldn't get you to do. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Do you see why I went through the whole excursion? Do you see why we went through the Tanakh and the law and the prophets? Do you understand why you had to understand the law and the prophets to understand what it was that Jesus fulfilled and that Jesus in fulfilling the law and the prophets is the satisfaction, is the fulfillment of the whole of the Old Testament and everything that the prophets have predicted. And then Paul picks up that same theology at Jesus' own words and says, but we too by the way we walk, by the way we live, by the way we conduct ourselves, we too are fulfilling, satisfying the law and the prophets. It's amazing stuff. 
Render to all what is due. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom is due. Fear to whom fear is due. Honor to whom honor is due. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. It means love each other and keep loving each other. Keep sacrificing for each other. It's not a one-time thing. You don't get to rest on your laurels. You don't get to say, well, you know, I was pretty nice to Sandy the other day. That's not good enough. It's not good enough to say, well, I was, I was really kind to my wife yesterday. No, it means continual, constant, all the time, loving each other, sacrificing to each other, letting that be the purpose, the inspiration for why you do the things you do, the way you walk out your life, love one another. Because he who loves his neighbor, which is a present tense, do it now, and now, and now. There's no end to it. You just keep doing it. He who loves continually his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, or you shall not murder, or you shall not steal, or you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that was Jesus' statement. Loving your neighbor as yourself is the great commandment. And Paul says, by keeping that, you have satisfied, fulfilled all the other commandments against you. Verse 10, this is what that kind of sacrificial love looks like. Love does no wrong to his neighbor. So then you don't need to be told, don't steal from them. Because you wouldn't do anything wrong to them. You love them. You wouldn't kill them. You wouldn't hurt them. Because you love them. And love, therefore, Paul says it again, love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. I know I'm hammering away at this, but so is Paul. Love for your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. The requirements of the law, the requirements of the way that the law expected you to live can be satisfied by your sacrificial love for your neighbor. And therefore, love is the fulfillment Not the abolition, not the destruction, not getting rid of. Love becomes the fulfillment of the law. And this do, says verse 11, loving one another, not doing any wrong to a neighbor, loving and in that way fulfilling the law. This do because you know the time. And then suddenly Paul gets all eschatological on us. For it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. I think what Paul is getting at there, here I can put it pretty simply. Are we closer to Jesus' return today than we were yesterday? Yes. Yes. Yeah, we're one day closer. Next week, we'll be one week closer. If you're convinced that Jesus is coming back, if you're convinced that he's going to come and get his church, then each day of this life takes you one step closer to his eventual return. And Paul says, knowing that, knowing that Jesus is coming back and knowing that with each passing day, you're getting closer and closer to him coming back. What if he was coming back today? What if he was coming back Today at 1 o'clock, an hour from now, he's going to come back. How would you act for the next hour? You'd be about as good as you knew how to be. You'd you'd just be loving on everybody. You'd be giving away all your money. You'd be giving people just whatever you did, feeding everybody. I'm feeding the poor right now. You'd be doing everything you could think to do. Paul says, okay, let that be your inspiration, knowing that he's coming back and knowing that we're closer now to that salvation than we've ever been. Let that be the inspiration for doing this, for acting like that. Don't wait until it's an hour from now. You don't know when it's going to be. It could be tomorrow. What we know for sure is we're closer today than we were yesterday. Knowing that, live like this. Knowing that, 
love like this. Knowing that, do no harm to your neighbor because you would rather sacrifice for them. Walk by the Spirit. Don't walk by the flesh. Don't use your freedom in Christ for an opportunity for your flesh to give in to your fleshly ways. Rather, recognize Jesus is coming back. And if he's coming back for you, then you would act like it. You would walk like it. This do knowing, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from your slumber, that deadness you were in before you understood the things of God. That's why so much of the language of the New Testament about our regeneration is exactly that. Regeneration, life from the dead, awaken, light, all that kind of language. We've been awakened from our stupor by the Spirit of God. Right now, our salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. And with each passing hour, it's getting closer and closer. Verse 12, the night is almost gone. The day is right at hand. So let us therefore, knowing that, knowing that he's coming soon, let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness. If we're in the light... Now, that means we used to be in the darkness. The way that we used to live were the acts of darkness, the deeds of darkness. He says, put away those deeds of darkness and instead put on the armor of light. Armor is protective clothing. When you put on armor, you're getting ready for a battle. And you're getting ready to engage What's coming? What's ahead of you? And you're going to be encased in. You're going to be guarded by. You're going to be protected by the light that you're walking in now. And then Paul makes it very plain. First in verse 12, he spoke in sort of poetic language. But now he's going to say it just as plainly and clearly as he can say it. Remember, he's saying this to people who are free from the law. Oh, happy condition. He's saying this to people who have freedom in Christ. He's saying this to people who are no longer under any condemnation by the law. And yet, he lays out rules and standards. Yet, he has expectations. Let us behave properly as in the day. So if the night and the darkness is how we used to be, the night and the darkness is when we were walking in our own sin and our own depravity. We didn't have the light of Christ. We didn't have the knowledge of God. We were walking in the darkness, but now we're walking in the day. So therefore, since we are in the day, he says, behave. Mm. (laughs) Now that you're saved, behave properly. Then he gives you some idea what that's like. Not in carousing, not in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, that's fleshliness. Not in arguing, which is strife, and not in jealousy, which is coveting what somebody else has. But instead, verse 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make zero provision. Make no provision whatsoever. Make no provision for your flesh. Your flesh is a tough taskmaster. Your flesh wants what it wants when it wants it. And you have lived your whole dark life satisfying your flesh. Making sure that your flesh is comfortable. But now you have a new master. And now you have a new heart. Now you have a new goal. Now you have a new way of walking in this life. And so he says, make no provision for your flesh. Instead, walk according to what God has for you. Walk according to the love that he expects and requires of you, that only he could give you. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now that phrase, in regard to his lust." means, yeah, it's okay to eat. When you're hungry, have something to eat. That's satisfying the flesh, but you got it. Yes, okay, breathe regularly. Comb your hair. Most of you brush your teeth. Yes, do the things that just take it, but where your lust is concerned, where the lusting of your flesh is concerned, the lust that you used to satisfy while you were walking in the dark, don't provide for that. 
By the way, that word provide has, even in the English language, has pro ahead of it. What it means is to make arrangements for it in advance. So don't think in advance about what I'm going to do to satisfy the lust of my flesh. (coughs) Don't think about that stuff. Instead, think about things that are right and good and pure and just. Think about walking in a holy way, in a loving way, taking care of your neighbor. Walk in the armor of light that you are instructed to wear. Walk after those things that satisfy the law. Walk in those ways that demonstrate that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing that, you have satisfied, you have fulfilled the law that is otherwise against you. It's remarkable theology. It's wonderful theology. But it also demonstrates as clearly as anything else we've read from Paul. It clearly demonstrates the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. We don't have time to really get into it this morning. But one more time, Paul could not say that. Because under the old covenant and under the law, the only way to fulfill the law was to do what the law said. And the only satisfaction the law could get was holding you either guilty or under control. Because we couldn't do it, the law wasn't ever satisfied till Christ came. And then Paul shows up and says things like, you know, you can fulfill the law by just loving each other. Jesus says things like, you know those commands? Those can be satisfied in love God, love your neighbor. That's new covenant stuff. That's new lawgiver stuff. That's stuff that the law of Moses, the Old Testament, could never say. But now they can say it because we're under the new lawgiver. We're under the new covenant of salvation by grace, through faith. And it's a whole other deal. And the whole other deal is based in love. Love for God, love for each other, sacrifice for one another, and in so doing, you fulfill the law. How good is that? (laughs) Pretty darn good. Questions? Just a a thought, uh, thinking about loving... Fulfilling the law by loving your neighbor and kind of the, the other side of that, um, the one who thinks he's filling the law, the legalist who thinks he's fulfilling the law by carrying out the deeds of the law while having contempt for his neighbor. And what Jesus said in the parable to a group of people who were actually thinking more highly of themselves while having contempt for their neighbor, when he gave a parable, two men went into the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector, and you know, of course, the Pharisee prays that you know he's thankful he's not like the tax collector, a swindler, and he says, you know, I fast twice a week and I uh, tithe. You know, I thank you that I'm not like it. what he was doing was having contempt for his neighbor, and you know, the neighbor, uh, the tax collector, was just God have mercy on me. And Jesus says, this man went home justified. The other one was not justified, even though he thought he was fulfilling the law. He wasn't. Yeah, just following the dictates written in stone can't get you justified. There has to be that change of heart. The internal change has to happen, and then you will do it. You'll most gladly do those things. Anything else? We're good? All right. Grab your little chorus book. I think this would be a good time to sing this song. We're going to sing There Is a Redeemer, which is number 15 in your chorus book. And I think almost instinctively, Kenneth stood up. So I think we all ought to stand up. That's what I think. I think we ought to stand up and sing this because there is, there is a Redeemer. Jesus, God's own son. Let's sing. There is a
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.